Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free. That is a promise that your Son gave us. May we cling to it. May we know it to be true because He and you are one. Father, thank you for this privilege of studying your word here this evening in a local assembly that has been protected by you, that has been set aside to do this good work, specifically on the gospel. Thank you for reminding us of how important that core doctrine is to us. Thank you, most of all, for your son's work on the cross to make all this a reality, even this evening. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the message title this evening is The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 7. Certainly a, uh, a series that we all need to cling to that if you think about it, the way that the Spirit's been posturing us on it so far, so many other concepts and doctrines and thoughts and developments and uh, improvements to our own systems of thinking along the way over the past few years that has gotten us all the way back to this place. And some of you might be a little bit surprised by it, but you shouldn't be, because in my opinion, the way that he's been working uh, has been really to precondition you for this discussion to make sure that when you arrived at this place in your own soul, when you were ready to receive these lessons, um, you were open to them. And that took some work, frankly. And that's how I see it as your shepherd. Uh, with that said, now is the time to focus. Philippians 3.13 says, Forgetting. What lies behind Matthew 6.34, do not be anxious about tomorrow that cleaves out yesterday and tomorrow, leaving us doing this thing that truly does matter most. So let's take advantage of the grace we've been given here once again this evening. We began our lesson on Sunday with this point. It's a very important point. It's really the focus of this evening's message, I think, because without really understanding and having the wisdom on this particular point resident in your soul, you're not going to develop much further. It's very, very important. And this is where one of the fundamental issues I found with the gospel, the contemporary gospel, the way that most people peddle it, let's say, uh, is lacking. There's a sort of, uh, it's, it's remiss, if you would, of this particular issue amongst other things that are related. <clears throat> but let's start this way. There's no dual mastership. You cannot be alive to sin and alive to God in Christ at the same time. You are either one or the other, Romans 6.11. If you are saved, you have one true sovereign, capital S, Christ is Lord. So you cannot be saved, in other words, and still have or be under the sovereignty of sin. If you're unsaved, you have a different nature even that is a slave or enslaved to that realm. And that is the realm also of the God of this world, Satan himself. 
So you cannot be saved and still be a member, if you would, or be under that uh, sovereignty. If you are saved, you are Christ, you are His. You simply must understand the implications of this as part of the gospel truth. And that's why the Spirit's been spending all this time with us. Otherwise, you will be susceptible to perverting the gospel, making it another gospel, frankly. Making it something it isn't supposed to be. And the Spirit's been taking us all the way back to the incarnation of our Lord and His three-year proper ministry uh, before His cross to get the details on this and how He felt about the gospel reality and how He presented it. Nonetheless, let's go to Romans 6.2 where we catch up with Paul. Romans 6.2. It's a very important focused study this evening. It sort of has its crescendo at the end of the message, so you're going to have to pay attention all the way up until that point so that the crescendo in your own soul in terms of understanding is met. Romans 6.2, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So here we have the base premise of the entire chapter of Romans 6, which means that if we don't understand what Paul means by this little phrase, died to sin even, if we don't understand what that means, we miss the point of the entire chapter altogether because the rest of the chapter is spent developing that point. And so you have to ask yourself right now, when I read died to sin, do I understand what that actually means? Is it part of who I am? Is it part of my personal reality? Do I consider myself dead to sin? Or do I consider myself completely alive to sin? So we have a base premise here that we're going to develop through Paul's teaching as we continue with the chapter. So you will miss the point altogether if you don't have that, which, by the way, is how even good-intentioned readers can become confused and possibly even misinterpret truth. Let me help you get started here. Died to sin... Because we are in Christ, Romans 6, 11, 8, 1, and He died in our place, Romans 5, 6 to 8, we are counted dead with Him, we are baptized into His death, Romans 6, 3. Our old self crucified with Him, therefore we are no longer slaves of sin. Sin is not our master anymore, Romans 6, 6 to 7, again. What does died to sin mean? Because we are in Christ and He died in our place, we are counted dead. That should be a comma there, by the way. We are counted dead with Him. We are baptized, in other words, into His death. Our old self crucified with Him. Therefore, we are no longer slaves of sin. Sin is not our master anymore. That's what it means to die to sin, to be dead to sin. At the end of the day, uh, we, have, uh, we are not slaves to sin anymore because we are baptized. That means to even identify with Christ in His death. In other words, our old self 
was under the sovereignty of sin, but it is dead, crucified with Christ. Therefore, we are free from sin's lordship. Again, verse 2. He says, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know, or do you not do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Do you get it? Knowing that our old self, who you were before salvation, assuming you're saved, otherwise you're still in the old self. You're still in the flesh, so to speak. That our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Well, the implication then, of course, is if you're saved, you're no longer a slave to sin. So if you're still a slave to sin, what does that mean? You're not saved. And that's the fruit that the Spirit's been getting at in this series. He put it way up front and says, listen, if you're saved, you will produce fruit. And if you don't produce fruit, you're not saved. This is the same idea, folks. The old self is a slave to sin. So if you're still a slave to sin, you're not saved. Because at salvation, that thing is done away with. And that's what Paul is arguing here, that you're died or dead to sin so again, Romans 6, 6, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And slave doulos implies mastership. It implies lordship. So our master or our lord is over there in the sovereignty of sin as an unsaved individual. That's the old self that we identified with previously. But now... We identify with the new self. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also what? Live with him. So we identify, and that's the whole idea with um, you know, bap- water baptism. You die, you go in, and you come out. Right? So, again, it's really important that you understand this fundamental truth up here on the board. Dual mastership, there, isn't, there is no such thing. You cannot be alive to sin and alive to God in Christ at the same time. You are either one or the other, Romans 6.11. If you are saved, you have one true sovereign, Christ is Lord. Now, it's important for you to remember Paul's postulating here, because if you don't, you will likely miss what the Spirit's been trying to establish in your soul in this entire series so far. This is how important this lesson is. You have to understand Romans, frankly, Romans 5 through 8 specifically, but we're on Romans 6. Uh, You have to at least understand minimally this evening that you're dead to sin if you're saved. Otherwise, the rest of the series even 
the things that we've been discussing even so far and the things that I know that are in front of us won't make any sense. You'll still maybe, this is what an unbeliever would do, they would still try to make things work for them. And that's a huge mistake. And what believers, I find, do is they have loved ones that they really want to go to heaven with them, so they try to morph Scripture to suit them as well. Either way, it's wrong, and it's uh, unlikely that um, the person, the object, or the person in question uh, is unsaved. So again, you will likely miss the Spirit's point if you don't get this one this evening, even moving forward. To summarize, we must understand that as new creatures in Christ, we are no longer under the sovereignty of sin, lest we fail the test, of course. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Lest we fail the test, of course. And the Bible's not shy about fruit. And fruit uh, is born from a tree. And if it's a bad tree, then it bears bad fruit. If it's a good tree, it bears good fruit. So if we miss this critical point, we'll miss the ensuing theological posturing the Spirit's been resting these lessons upon. Furthermore, If we miss this critical point, the more advanced doctrines that deal with progressive or experiential sanctification risk being muddied as well. You've got to think about it. The gospel is the core of all this. The whole Bible was really created. The canon was completed so that the gospel was known to the world and could go out. If you get that core thing, all the other doctrines that build on the gospel reality the gospel truth, are going to be skewed. So we have to get these critical points down in our souls. So please make sure you understand this passage intimately. I would recommend you read chapters 5 through 7 even uh, when you go home tonight. And even if you don't understand all the nuances, don't, don't worry about it right now. Catch what the Spirit's willing to tell you right now. But you have to understand this passage intimately. Otherwise, you might miss the point. And I don't want you to miss the point. And P.S., just a side note, I don't always offer this so freely. Um, But if you have any questions or concerns, please reach out to me personally. And I will help you through this any way that I can. Honestly. And don't, please, don't go running off reading a bunch of commentaries. Because as I've said a million times... You could read one person that says this, and the next person says this, and the next person says this. That's why I never hang my hat on anyone's commentaries. I go on what the Spirit says to me, and that's what He wants me to teach you. Okay? So if you have any questions or concerns, or you're confused, or you just need a little help, reach out to me. I'll make myself available. It's that important, folks. You have to get this straight. Or else the rest of the things that I'm going to present to you are going to be Um, confusing possibly at best I guess chances are your personal go-to library is riddled with confusing doublespeak on this chapter of Romans trust me been there done that again Romans 6 7 you there okay Romans 6 7 for he who has died is freed from sin now if we have died with Christ we believe that we shall also live with him Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, 
death no longer is master over him. In other words, he conquered death. That's part of the gospel proper. He conquered death. And by the way, I put out a new, I forgot to mention this, I put out a new um, page on the internet uh, for North Christian Church on the website that is focused just on the gospel. It says the gospel truth, and I made it a nice little book, and it opens up, and you can read this book. And on one side it has the principles, on the other side it has the scripture, and it walks a person right through. The name of the book is Are You a Sinner? So go to the website, bookmark it, send it to friends. That's what it's there for. We're trying to get people saved. So anyways, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. If he didn't master, if he didn't conquer death, we have no hope whatsoever, folks. If he didn't come out of the grave, we're not coming out of the grave. Whatever happens to Christ, we must identify with at salvation. That's what Paul's saying. He said we should, as being baptized into union with him, we should identify with his death and burial and his resurrection. We're dead to sin, but we're new in Christ. We have a new life in Christ. And that's how we are to think about it. So when Christ died to sin, up here in the board, regarding sin's penalty, there's two points here, regarding sin's penalty... It propitiated God's judgment against the sinner. And then number two, regarding sin's power, forever breaking sin's power over those who belong to him. And we are to identify with him this way. As we'll see, this reality is absolutely fundamental to our understanding the rest of Paul's letter to the Roman church. And I cannot stress this enough. That's why a lot of, most theologians would argue after maybe the Gospels, some would, I think, misplace Romans above the Gospels in some ways, but um, the great so-called theological treatise in the Bible is the book of Romans, as far as the New Testament is concerned. So you have to understand this book, and I cannot stress it enough. You must understand the reality that since you have been baptized into Christ with the Holy Spirit, your new reality is that sin is dead to you. Sin is dead to you, meaning it is no longer your master or your Lord. That was the old self, as Paul just referred to it. Look at Romans 6, 6 again. What does it say? Knowing this, you're still there, right? Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away so so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So he did all this work, not so you could go back to it and pretend you're still under that sovereignty if you're a believer. He did all this work so that you would be set free. What is Galatians What is it, 5.1? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. So the work is complete, but you have to understand what actually happened with that good work. And part of the gospel reality is understanding exactly what happened, and how we are to identify with him as Lord and Savior. So you are not to identify with the old self, regardless of how often the world or your flesh says you have to. Those enemies of yours are really good at doing that. Up here on the board, you have been made new. When you responded positively to Jesus' call to follow me, you denounced the sovereignty of sin, and accepted Jesus as your new Lord. 
You have been sealed, by the way, with the Spirit by Jesus Christ Himself. So you have a promise. The Spirit, knowing that the Spirit indwells you, knowing that you are led by the Spirit, and most of us can attest how that happens. It may be slightly different from person to person, from believer to believer, but if you're saved, you know He's there because He makes Himself known. That's in Scripture. So the sealing ministry of the Spirit is His presence even. And Jesus Christ assures us of, of, of that. Mark 1.8 and Ephesians 1.13-14. So again, you have been made new when you responded positively, if you responded, if you're saved, of course, to Jesus' call to follow me, you denounced the sovereignty of sin and accepted Jesus as your new Lord. You have been sealed with the Spirit by Jesus Christ Himself. Hold your thumb, go to Mark 1.8. I'll give you the cross-references. Mark 1.8. We have John the Baptist speaking about this baptism. But did you know that Jesus Christ himself is the one who baptizes? You're baptized with the Spirit. You're placed into union with Christ. But look who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. I baptize you with water, says John the Baptist, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ is actually the baptizer. Go to Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 1.13. Again, we're just amplifying the point on the board that we do and have been sealed with a promise. And it's called the Spirit Himself. You see, an unbeliever is not going to have that sense of reassurance. Ephesians 1.13. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Isn't that wonderful? That you've been sealed by God the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. In other words, you're His now. And he wants you to know it. He sent the Spirit to confirm it, to assure you of it, to seal you in it. And these are the scriptures that should help you tremendously in understanding that you have been made new, and that's part of the promise. And part of being made new is the indwelling of the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit inside of you, the convicting ministry. So that's what I was getting at a couple of lessons back when I said, if you're saved, then you're spiritual. The Holy Spirit Himself seals you, ministers to you, encourages you, convicts you, walks with you, reminds you, and the list goes on and on. And if you're minus all these things, this is what the Spirit's been saying. If you're minus His presence in your life, then you are not spiritual, you are what we would call carnal or fleshly still which is an unbeliever, in the flesh. Again, the point on the board, you have been made new. When you responded positively to Jesus' call to follow me, you denounced the sovereignty of sin and accepted Jesus as your new Lord. You have been sealed with the Spirit by Jesus Christ Himself. So hold that thought and be encouraged, please. Back to Romans 6, 9. 
Romans 6, 9. <clears throat> Let's continue with Paul's argument against that primary thing, dead to sin. You're, you're dead to sin, so should you still live in it? It's a rhetorical question. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For, death, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That's for all of us even. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And since we are baptized with him, we live with him. That's the whole argument. We identify with him. We're baptized into union with him. Therefore, because of the life he lives, he lives to God. We live with him. Therefore, our lives are consecrated, if you would, to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. As Paul continues, remember that he's explaining the originally stated baseline precept up here in the board. We're still developing this very first thing that we saw in verse 2. That important. This is why you to study um, the whole of Scripture. Context I mean, how often have I been saying this from the pulpit for years now? Context is really key. If you don't have the context, then you miss it. Suppose you just jumped forward to, you know, Romans 6, 7, and you don't have what he's actually trying to develop from verse 2. Ready and in front of you. It's very possible you could take something out of context and get something wrong. That's the importance of guess what? You ready? Read your own Bibles. There is no way I'm going to stand up here and go, okay, guys, let's go to Romans 1.1 and read with you. It's a waste of time. Do you understand? I'm not going to read the Bible with you. But the only way you're going to get the full context is if you read the Bible. Anyways, just a friendly reminder. I know you missed me. Died to sin. Because we are in Christ... And he died in our place. We are counted dead with him. We are baptized into his death, in other words. That's the language Paul uses. Of course, it's figurative. We're still living, right? Our old self crucified with him, although it's very real because it's spiritual. Don't get confused. Our old self crucified with him. Therefore, we are no longer slaves of sin. Sin is not our master anymore. Now, there's another subtlety here that's worth noting, but we need to go to the original language this time to find it. Look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so logizomai up here on the board is for that word consider. It's the present middle imperative. I'll give you the Greek in a moment. It's often used metaphorically to refer to an absolute, unreserved, confidence in something known to be true. This heartfelt confidence affects every thought in action. Again, he says, even so, consider yourselves to be what? Dead to sin. In other words, I need you to ponder this thing with absolute integrity, pervasiveness, faith. And this is what he's saying often used metaphorically to refer to an absolute, unreserved confidence in something known to be true. This heartfelt confidence affects every thought and action. In other words, 
If you're saved and you have the right to know, you should know that you're dead to sin, then living the spiritual life, so to speak, is in the presence of this consideration always. Does that make sense? It's a heartfelt confidence that affects every thought and action. Hold that thought and let me give you just a little more detail to help you out with what Paul is really telling these people when he uses the word translated consider. He says, even so, consider yourselves dead to be sin, uh, dead to sin. I gave you the, the, the word legizomai in the Greek for consider was present uh, imperative middle, right? Up here on the board. So present imperative in Greek means continually, habitually follow this command. You see the exclamation point. That's the, it's, you know, it's imperative that you do this thing, okay? And it's something you do all the time. That's the habit. So continually, habitually follow this command is often a call to a long-term commitment and calls for the attitude or action to be one's continual way of life, their lifestyle. So you're to consider that you're dead to sin. That's your lifestyle. That's what you live in, in other words. In the middle voice, this voice means that the subject initiates the action and participates in the results of the action. In other words, you're involved, but you also receive the grace blessings of actually being in that realm of thinking, understanding who you are, that you're new in Christ. He says, consider that, that you're dead to sin. Consider that, my friends, is what he's saying. And commit your whole life to that consideration. Does that make sense? Con- commit. I know there's the C word. The C word, commit, P word, patience. Everybody's like, ooh, I don't like those. Commit is what he's saying. And when you take this thing, middle voice says, when you do this thing, you also are going to receive certain blessings. So if we put all of these finer details together, we may rightly divide the word of truth, Allah, 2 Timothy 2.15, and conclude up here on the board, and I gave you another translation. I think it's the King James says, accordingly. In other words, it makes sense, accordingly. Not just even so consider, but accordingly consider. Because of these facts I just argued with you for the last you know, umpteen verses. Paul is encouraging the Roman believers to cling to the faith that was given to them previously, to never be fooled into thinking sin is still their master. Even when you do sin, you, quote-unquote, your new nature isn't changed. Your Lord owns you. There's a big difference, folks, between functioning in a nature that by its very nature is under the lordship or the sovereignty of sin, and then living in a nature that by its very nature is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Those are two different things. We can be under this lordship and skedaddle over here, right? And make a few, you know, sins along the way. But because we're totally changed, because our new Lord, because the Spirit's there as our seal, reminding us, teaching us, encouraging us, exhorting us, because we have the Word of God right there as raw materials for the Spirit to do all that good work in us, we don't leave this thing behind. It's an impossibility. You shall know them by their fruit. So your, the core desire to get closer and closer to God. We love because He first loved us, right? Because of that reality, 
because the Spirit's right there, the Scripture's right there, Jesus Christ indwells us, is right there telling us, leading us to those truths as we are sanctified, that still doesn't mean that just because you sin, that your lordship has changed. Your nature never changes. That's very important. The world and your enemies, Satan and your flesh even, are going to try to convince you otherwise. So Paul is encouraging the Roman believers to cling to the faith that was given to them previously, to never be fooled into thinking sin is still their master. Even when you sin, you, your new nature, isn't changed. Your Lord owns you. What Paul was seeing is what I've seen in my own tenure as a pastor. Sheep have a bad habit of listening to the, let's call them the little voices in their heads, that are telling them that they are still unworthy slugs under the sovereignty of sin. So they play the part at times. They fall prey uh, to their own doubts. And that's what Satan is very good at, sowing seeds of doubt, uh, even in believers. That's what the fiery darts are all about. But it doesn't mean that you're going to be changed. You've got to remember that you are sealed. That's it. You are sealed. It's done for you. God promises to transform you if you're saved. And that's the distinction the Spirit's been making, that an unsaved person or a person that claims they're saved and never is transformed doesn't have any fruit. Therefore, they cannot claim that they're saved. They can proclaim it, but they don't have any real stake to it. And they're the, per- they're the people who get to the end of all this, unfortunately, and he says, I, don't, I never knew you. So this is how important it is to get the gospel right, folks. But back to this point, sheep have a bad habit of listening to their enemies who love to convince them that they're still unworthy to be a slave of our true master, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we're still really slaves of this sovereignty over here. And that's what Paul is fighting against. It is a situation of doubt and infiltration, uh, fiery darts, if you'd like to call them that way, Uh, lots of avenues, the world system, um, it's really hard nowadays. I'm, uh, in some ways, I'm very blessed that I'm not out there doing uh, regular jobs like you all are because you're out there with most people nowadays, it seems. Am I, is this unfair to say? I don't want to be like the, the dude in the cave. But most people, it seems, are totally negative. Is that fair? I mean, totally negative. And the way that they talk, they, 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 um, they go about their business, the way they think, the, the way that work, places are even run even the events that happen and on in the workplace are all very very worldly and it's easy to be sort of trapped and oppressed with doubt you know what i mean the little doubt like it's almost like you're a you know a vessel surrounded by water and it, it cracks right eventually some things leak through but this is his encouragement and this is mine Uh, Don't listen to that garbage. That's why you're doing what you're doing right now. So you are most definitely not under the sovereignty of sin if you are truly saved. Your enemies, your flesh included, of course, understand that if they can sow doubt into your soul regarding these baseline truths about salvation, well, then they have some control over you. And this is the case where the Spirit should be controlling you. But you give control to sin, 
something without any rights whatsoever over you. Didn't we just learn this? You're dead to sin. Sin has no right over you, has no power over you, has no sovereignty over you. It used to. It used to run the show. You were a slave to sin. But now you're a slave to Christ. So sin has no rights over you, even though your enemies will tell you, yes, it does. So the Spirit should be controlling you, but you give control to sin from time to time, something without any rights whatsoever over you. Therefore, this control, of course, is antagonistic to the Spirit that desires to fill you, to use the Greek word pleuroo. We've studied that out in great detail in the past, which was, by the way, part of the softening, part of the preconditioning of getting to where we're at now. Can you imagine that? Yeah. It's also why a believer can behave just like an unbeliever, even be indistinguishable for a time. We call that grieving and quenching the Spirit. When we sin, we grieve the Spirit. That's Ephesians 4.30. When we quench, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, we douse His, let's call it His fire. His judgment is in view. Anytime fire, uh, very often in Scripture, fire refers to judgment is in view, it relates to his convicting ministry. These things are antagonistic to being controlled or filled and walking by the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, Galatians 5.16. So we're certainly not learning, uh, and I'm certainly not teaching some weird, sinless perfection after salvation. That's ridiculousness. What the Spirit's making very known, abundantly known, is that We're no longer under the sovereignty. We're dead to sin if we're saved. Now we're under the sovereignty of Christ, and certain things are guaranteed. And if the objective criteria, the output, the fruit of those guarantees are not evident, then you cannot be saved, and you're still over here. You may still, you may look just like a a truly saved professing Christian. Be a professing Christian yourself. Do all the works. Look exactly the same. But because the root system is bad, God says the, all the fruit is bad too. Because somewhere along the line, somewhere back in the recesses of why, let's call it our motivation, why a person would be doing these things over here is very different than why a person does those same things over here. The person who does, the person who helps the old lady across the street, the person who gives to the church, the person who does X, Y, and Z, that's, you know, all market fruit, as we might see uh, in the Bible. The person over here in the sovereignty of sin, they do it for selfish reasons. They do it to appease God or... or, um, They're on a works program. They think if they do enough good works that they're going to go to heaven that if they do enough of it throughout their life and they proclaim their self-righteousness to God, somehow God's going to be appeased with their good works. But they will find out differently at the great white throne that their deeds will never measure up and that they needed Christ. So the motivation is really what's behind it. And that's an issue between you and the Lord. But back to this, up here on the board. Grieving and quenching the Spirit. When we sin, we grieve the Spirit When we quench, we douse his fire. Judgment and view relates to his convicting ministry. That means you know, in other words, the right thing to do because he's telling you the right thing to do. 
and you go, no, I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm going to not do this anymore. These things are antagonistic to being controlled or filled and walking by the Spirit. So please do not make the concepts of grieving and quenching out to be more than they really are. Trust me, I've studied this out in great detail. There's just remnants with some of you. When you see these verses and you see these words, and because of a certain religion that you may have been attached to, uh, it conjures up wrong thinking that was actually on the basis of a perverted gospel. So do not make the concepts of grieving and quenching out to be more than they really are. Their meanings and context are very easy to comprehend. That's the truth. There's no secret doctrine relating to some protocol for spirituality that unlocks so-called deeper meanings of these concepts. They are what they look like they are. You're frustrating the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's what it means. Grieving and quenching are exactly what you most readily think they are. Antagonism to the Spirit's will to fill you, to control you. Make sense? Makes sense to me. Should make sense to a child, because if it doesn't, it's not good. The Spirit wants to control you. Right? That's His ministry. And you can buck Him, even as a believer. And that's what happens when you sin. So when you buck him, you're quenching him, you're, you're um, grieving him. These are the things that you do. Okay? So when we sin, we grieve the Spirit. When we quench, we douse his fire, his judgment to his convicting ministry. These things are antagonistic to being controlled and walking by the Spirit. All of this was instigated for a very good cause by, go back to Romans 6.11. Romans 6.11, all of that good work was instigated by this. I even gave you the original for the word consider, so you get a better, deeper understanding of what Paul's saying, even so, or appropriately. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Up here on the board, just as a reminder, Paul is encouraging the Roman believers to cling to the faith that was given to them previously, to never be fooled into thinking sin is still your master. Even when you sin, you, your new nature, isn't changed. Your Lord owns you. As I mentioned at the start of class, it is absolutely imperative that you understand Paul's encouragement here. Up here on the board, dead to sin. That's you if you're saved. This means sin is no longer your sovereign, no longer Lord over you. A gospel that allows for a person to remain alive to sin is a false gospel. Even if it has the facts about Jesus correct, if you're truly saved, you'll hate sin. Matthew 6, 24. Again, dead to sin. This is what it means, folks. We can't look at these things in vacuums. We have to look at what we would call plenary scripture, the whole of it. There's a lot of things that happen at salvation. There's a lot of things that have to actually happen as you lead up to salvation. A few key ones. This means sin is no longer your sovereign, no longer Lord over you to be dead to sin. A gospel that allows for a person to remain alive to sin is a false gospel, even if it has the facts about Jesus correct. If you're truly saved, you'll hate sin, Matthew 6, 24. And just to extrapolate, now we've been talking about since day one, since part one of this seven-part series so far, 
the crux has been the gospel, which is what we would call our position, positional truth, positional sanctification, however you'd like to look at it. Choose your poison, right? But we're talking about your position, the things that are cut and dry. You're saved or you're not saved. Okay? But here's the thing. Where he's taking us and where we've been in the past is that as saved individuals, if we don't have the gospel right, and if we're not peddling the gospel correctly, then we could be misleading people. And God forbid we didn't have it right and we're we're not saved ourselves. So there are certain things that are out in front or beyond salvation that we have to consider that's in Scripture as subjective and objective criteria to know that we're saved, that we have to evaluate. And here's one of them. If you're truly saved, you'll hate sin. And just to extrapolate for a brief moment out of the primary space then of positional truth, The person who hates sin confesses sin. It's that simple. The person who hates sin confesses sin. In other words, confess just means, yep, that's a sin. God, I screwed up. I did it. You know I did it. I know I did it. I'm just coming clean. Amen? That's what it means. Is that that difficult? No. It's actually, quote-unquote, I hate to use the word natural, but I hope you know what I mean. It's most natural for a saved individual to confess their sin. Why? Because if they're truly saved, they don't like sin. They hate sin. The new nature despises sin. Can't ever sin. Hates sin. Doesn't want to sin. You have Jesus Christ and you have the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who's trying to control you, saying, don't do that, don't do that. Oh, you just grieved me. Right? And... A saved person will minimally, doesn't mean they're not going to even, you know, in their obstinance, continue with a certain sin for a time. But what the Bible says is that because they're under the lordship of Jesus Christ, because they're a new creature that cannot sin, there's going to be an opposition to all the nasty deeds of the flesh. There's going to be an opposition to those things. And if that opposition isn't part of who you are, your very nature, the new nature, then you're not saved, is what the Bible says. Not Pastor Ed, that's what the Bible says. So the person who hates sin, what do they do? They confess it. Why? Because they hate it. They didn't like it. They hated it about themselves at salvation, you know, like a prerequisite type thing. That's part of what? Repentance? See, a false gospel won't treat that as part of the gospel proper. And because of that, it affords people to not hate sin. You're saved. You're going to heaven. Who cares if you never hate sin again? Woo! And it's a false gospel. It's a false gospel to tell somebody that they can abide in that they can live in, be alive to, sin after they're saved. This is something that is dealt with up front. Do you or do you not want to follow me? Because if you want to follow me, so says Jesus Christ, you've got to leave the self-life behind. That's what the parable is about. 
And some people go right up to the door and then go, no, thank you. Some people look the part, as we'll see in the parable of the soils. They look the part for a little while and then they fade off. Hmm. But nonetheless, a person who hates sin confesses sin. So let's just spend a moment here on progressive sanctification issues. Supposing the individual is saved, of course. So the person who's saved hates sin and therefore they confess it. And that simple fact ought to shed light on the whole debacle over confession of sins in the church age. Nowhere in Scripture is it stated that sinning somehow deletes the Spirit's ministry in your life, or that you are temporarily spiritually inept or without access to Him. Nowhere. Nowhere does it say that until you confess your sins, your prayers will bounce off heaven and God won't hear them. That, my friends, is religion in all its glory. And it's disgusting, is it not? But that religion, folks, is born out of a perverted gospel, one that allows... One that states, all you have to do is believe these facts and you're going to heaven, baby. We'll deal with the sin problem later. No. No. You face that right now and you repent from it. So says Jesus Christ. And then we'll talk. So there's religion for you. The folks that peddle those kinds of religions, as I've discovered, actually have a more basic problem they have the gospel wrong. And just to be fair, I was in that camp for years. So I'm not hoity-toity and I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I'm saying this is what happens, folks, when you get it wrong. Something that may seem benign isn't benign. It's malignant. And you can see it in the fruit of the churches themselves. If you open your eyes. I presented a, quote, convenient gospel to lots of people. And I know many of you have as well. And in retrospect, I am ashamed to admit it. But humility is the key. So I've gladly accepted my faults and sought the truth out. So please understand that the Spirit's, or what the Spirit's been saying here as He delivers you from the bondage of your own personal religions, whatever they might be. He's saying simply, for example, a saved person is a confessing person. Why? Because a saved person is a new creature, and that new creature hates sin. Hence, John's treatise on unbelief being evidenced by a love of sin, unrighteousness, 1 John 3. A saved person is a confessing person. They're one and the same, folks. That's the point. If you claim you're saved and then you never confess sin, you don't have any problem with it. Maybe you do, maybe you don't agree with God on it, but it's a non-issue. Then you've accepted the wrong gospel. 
Because I believe that's what a lot of people have done. They've accepted the wrong gospel. And they're like, well, there's always tomorrow. Woo, I'm going to live for today. Oh, there's always tomorrow. I'm still going to live in the sovereignty of sin. And then if I live long enough, you know, maybe when I'm 79 and I'm on my deathbed, then I'll make a decision about sin. It doesn't mean they can't be saved at that point, but they've wasted an awful lot of time thinking they're saved and playing a game. So a saved person is a confessing person. Why? Because a saved person is a new creature, and that new creature hates sin. Hence John's treatise on unbelief being evidenced by a love of sin, even unrighteousness, 1 John 3. Okay, enough of progressive sanctification speak. The only reason he did that was to take you out front, to show you, to tease you, to give you a taste of what happens when you get the gospel. Not even all of it, just some of it wrong. You leave something out, you add a little something here. By the time you're way out here, it's erred significantly in the lives of people that are now confused. Some of them might be saved, some of them are not. Some of them, by the grace of God, are still saved, like myself. Some of them not. Who knows? But people are confused nonetheless. Because now the things they read in the Bible don't make sense. They feel like they have to be a PhD to understand them. Like, how, what's it supposed to be the faith of a child? What's the Paul guy talking about? I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm like a dummy here. You know? That should never be the case. It should be that easy. You read a word like, you just grieve the spirit, you should say to yourself, yeah, I just kind of ticked the spirit off. Fair enough? No charge for the lay term. Right? I ticked him off. That's not what he wanted from me. Is that fair? I sinned. Of course that's not what he wants from me. He wants to control me. He doesn't want me to be controlled by something that's dead. Does that make sense? A child can understand that, right? Right. There you go. But enough of that. We'll get to that in due time. It is in our title after all. Sanctification. All the Spirit was trying to show you is how the more advanced doctrines are often merely symptoms of a mangled gospel. That, again, advanced doctrines are often merely symptoms of a mangled gospel. So let's pick up where we left off on Sunday. I've got, yeah, I've got five minutes. Let's, let's do it. Let's do this. Go to Luke 14.25. Where Jesus, and it's a good punchline for the, tonight's message, Jesus had Jesus never had any intention whatsoever of watering down the gospel or making it convenient. It would have made him vomit. Some of the guys, seriously, if you went up to Jesus, Jesus walked up right now, right, and you said, Jesus, I have a coin, and it has John three sixteen on it, and it says, believe this and you'll be saved. What do you think of that? He'd probably whip it at you with your forehead. <laughs> Tell you, how dare you represent me in such a cheap way. I went to the cross to save you. This is, whatever this is, is disgusting to me. That's what I see. But that's the average gospel. And I'm not saying you can't give somebody a coin as a reminder. We have them in here somewhere. I'm not saying you can't give somebody a coin as a reminder or wear John 3.16 on your shirt or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you're going to present somebody with the gospel, give them the gospel. Don't water it down. Don't say, hey, believe this thing and you're all set. If anything, you're creating a stumbling block. 
Luke 14.25. Jesus wouldn't have done it, nor should we. Luke 14.25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now I'm so glad I gave you this graphic up here because someone intimated to me after I taught this, I'm so glad you taught about that word hate because I was confused. I was looking at my mother cross-eyed. <laughs> I hate you now. I was kidding. They didn't really say that. But they said they were struggling with it. They said, I don't, you know, I don't get it. So this is the way I like to look at it. Hopefully this helps. From human viewpoint, there's hate and there's love. Those are the polar ends, you know. You know, I hate something, I love something, whatever. But that's human viewpoint, therefore it's finite. So it's easy to decipher, all right, if I'm over here, I, you know, I hate a little bit more. I hate that person a little bit more than I love. You know what I'm saying, this kind of a thing. I shouldn't say people, but you get the point. Okay? So if I shrink it down just for the sake of scaling it, it's the same thing, just scaled down. So I can show you the magnitude of infinite love, which is an arrow. It just keeps on going and going and going because it's infinite. Well, in view of how much we should love Christ, then anything over here by comparison is hate. And that's divine viewpoint. And that's all he's saying. He's like, I want you to love me so much that by comparison, you hate your own family. Right? And that's it. Fair enough? So this is part of it, though, that you're going to a person. You ready? You're accepting a person, not a doctrine, not facts about a person, not anything but the whole person. And he says, here I am. I am Lord and Savior. If you want to follow me, you have to repent from the lordship, from the sovereignty of sin, from all of that, the self-life, and turn to me. And my Father will give you the faith, and you'll be saved. How about that? But he says it's me, not the facts about me, not even the righteous facts about the cross. None of it. You have, you can, listen to this, you could get the entire, you could read that, you go home and say, oh, I want to check out that new book Pastor put out there, right? And you might say, I believe all of that. As an unbeliever, they could say, I believe all of that, but I will not accept him, the person. You're not saved. So in other words, you can believe everything about the gospel, but not accept the person, and therefore you're not saved. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.